This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. We're coming to you remotely this week from various locations. I'm in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, where we'll be looking at further fallout from the controversial gang truce in Honduras. But first, we head to Dallas, Texas. That's where Kurt Devine is this week with our usual roundup of news from around Latin America. U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry met with Venezuela's foreign minister to improve governmental relations between the two nations. The discussion marks the first substantial diplomatic meeting between the United States and Venezuela since the contested presidential election of Nicolas Maduro in April. The meeting took place in Guatemala during the annual General Assembly of the Organization of American States. Venezuela requested the meeting just after releasing an American filmmaker imprisoned on charges of espionage, removing one factor stifling diplomacy. Venezuela's foreign minister, Alias José Hawa, expressed confidence for future cooperation, including ambassador-led discussions. This meeting marks the beginning of a good, respectful relationship between the government of Nicolas Maduro and the government of President Barack Obama. Neither country has had an ambassador in the other's capital city since 2010. Ecuador's foreign minister will meet with Britain's foreign secretary this month to solve the diplomatic dilemma created by WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange. The foreign officers will meet in London later this month to resolve the saga that has stifled relations between Ecuador and Britain since last year. Assange has avoided extradition to Sweden by hiding in Ecuador's embassy in London. He's wanted for questioning on allegations of sexual assault and rape. Ecuadorian authorities suggest the U.S. wants Assange extradited to Sweden so that a U.S. court can try him for leaking classified documents. Chilean President Sebastián Piñera made the rounds in Washington this week, speaking with both President Barack Obama and Secretary of State John Kerry about trade negotiations. Piñera also spoke at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C., a reporter, Zach Cohen, tells us about Piñera's speech. Before Piñera leaves office in nine months, he said he'll continue to integrate Chile into the global economy. He hopes continuing to establish free trade agreements, especially with the U.S., will do just that. We are fully committed with integrating ourselves to the world, competing with countries all over the world. Chile is committed to penetrating Asian markets as well. Piñera said Japan's working with other Pacific countries like Chile would be a huge contribution to trade negotiations. We have created the Pacific Alliance, which is a very young alliance, but has been extremely successful. Piñera also endorsed investment in Chilean technology and education, especially when it comes to promoting entrepreneurship. Even though we arrived late to the Industrial Revolution, and that's why we have been an underdeveloped country. We will not arrive late to this new revolution, which is much stronger and deeper than the old one. Piñera predicted a day earlier that Chile would eradicate poverty within a decade. For Latin Pulse, I'm Zach Cohen in Washington, D.C. Nicaragua awarded a Chinese company with a 100-year concession to build a canal connecting the Caribbean Sea and the Pacific Ocean. International investors will fund the $40 billion project that will serve as an alternative route for vessels that use the Panama Canal. 
Nicaragua's president, Daniel Ortega, says the canal's construction will create thousands of jobs for impoverished families throughout Central America. Brazil's government dispatched 200 soldiers to a rural region to calm rising tensions between an indigenous group and a local landowner. Members of the Torena tribe have been occupying farm property owned by a wealthy politician in the western state of Mato Grosso del Sul. One of the tribe members was killed last week as police tried to evict the group. Similar protests have escalated throughout Brazil since the government recently stopped granting indigenous tribes the right to settle on ancestral lands owned by other parties. For Latin Pulse, I'm Kurt Devine. Thanks, Kurt. Regular listeners know we devoted most of last week's program to the gang truce in Honduras. The imprisoned leaders of that country's factions of MS-13 and Barrio 18 say the Catholic Church has brokered a truce designed to end the gang war that makes Honduras the murder capital of the world. Mara Salvatrucha Trece, or MS-13, and Barrio 18, or the 18th Street Gang, are two of the most violent street gangs in the world. One of those reacting with caution and skepticism about the truce is Sonia Wolf. Wolf is with the Mexican nonprofit called Encide. She's also a contributor to the book Maras, Gang Violence and Security in Central America. We reached her via Skype. In Mexico City. Yes, um, from what we have seen um, so far, um, what has happened in, in Honduras um, does not seem to be as formal um, as the truce in, in El Salvador. Um, there have been um, declarations that were made um, separately by the main gangs in Honduras, Mara Savatucha and Calle 18, um, who uh, stated that they were prepared to, to give up violence, that they wanted to ask um, for forgiveness. Um, for the for the harm they had caused, and um, they asked um, for reinsertion opportunities, which is also what happened um, in El Salvador. But the the process, um, which is still very recent, um, has apparently not been as uh, as formal um, as the one in El Salvador, where also um, press releases were prepared, where press conferences um, were being held, and. Um, uh, where there has been more intervention on the part of the mediators. Um, there's also a mediator in, in Honduras, um, uh, Bishop uh, Emiliani, um, and I think this will be important um, to, to bringing the, the process along, but we, we still have to see in the case of Honduras um, how this process will actually move along. You use the term reinsertion. Does that mean the changing of prisons for some of the gang leaders? What, what do you exactly mean by that term? Um, when gang members speak of reinsertion opportunities um, uh, in El Salvador and in Honduras, um, what they think of mainly, um, according to the information that is available, is um, opportunities for existing gang members to receive more education and especially to receive um, job opportunities. Um, there has also been a demand um, in El Salvador for better conditions um, in the prisons. And this is uh, going to be one of the, um, the key challenges for, for the respective um, governments of these countries um, to actually provide these opportunities. Um, your question is, um, is very important in the sense that when we speak about gang rehabilitation and reinsertion, um, the services that are being supplied to gang members should be broader. Um, education and job opportunities are important, of course, 
But one issue that is very important um, in the case of street gangs is the gang identity that needs to be reduced and a more conventional identity needs to be created so that um, gang members can actually be inserted into a more conventional lifestyle. Beyond rehabilitation, there has been some criticism in El Salvador and maybe more criticism in Honduras about the idea that these truces seem to be a, a sort of amnesty for these gangs? Yes, um, I think there has been um, a lot of criticism um, towards the, the truce process. Um, certainly in, in El Salvador, we have seen this, um, where the truce was announced in March last year. Um, this has to do in part, I think, with the, the lack of transparency that has surrounded the whole process, but also um, gang members are... Um, not uh, not well received in in society because of the the harm they have caused to many members of society um so uh, there is some um, hesitation of course in in many sectors uh, of the population who think that uh, gang members will get away will not get punished for the crimes and the acts of violence um they have committed um, I think this is um, not the intention on, on the part of the authorities, and certainly in El Salvador, the persecution of gang members has continued. Gang, gang members um, uh, do get arrested um, for, for various crimes that in some cases date back um, a long time. So there's certainly um, an attempt to, to continue law enforcement. Uh, the authorities have not um, stated that they will um, discontinue law enforcement and only focus on rehabilitation and uh, prevention for um, at-risk youth. Um, I think um, um, the, the the concern is not so much um, whether this might uh, amount to to an amnesty, um, but the um, the viability of any gang truce. Gang truces have been attempted in in various countries. There were some. Uh, attempts in Central America, in, in several of the countries, but these truces have never prospered. We have very little information um, about those processes. Um, so what we have at the moment is really um, uh, something unprecedented in, in terms of gang truces in, in Central America. But we have some other experiences, um, um, many, of course, in the United States that have been documented, um, another one that has been documented in, in Ecuador, but what these um, experiences show is that gang truces generally fail. Uh, Ecuador seems to be the exception, but it, it would require further research to see whether it actually has um, has lasted beyond the, the actual documentation of the experience. Um, but the, the key difference um, in the case of Ecuador is that the gangs there were very small and not very criminally involved. And the situation... Um, oftentimes in the United States and certainly in Central America is very different. It is different in the sense that um, the street gangs, um, if we focus now on, on the case of Central America, the street gangs there are, um, are very sizable. They have thousands of members um, and their, um, their family members um, have also come to, um, to benefit from, from their various criminal activities. So the, the magnitude of the phenomenon is really um, um, much more significant, much more extensive. And um, this makes it more difficult um, to make the, um, the truth sustainable. And also, of course, um, 
given the the very nature of street gangs um there is uh, confusion as to um how strong the leadership and how strong the organizational capacity in the gangs is and there is certainly um, a degree of leadership and the gangs have also become more organized um, since the, the introduction of the Mano Dura policies um, a few years ago. Um, but still, there are street gangs. They are not, um, not that organized. The leadership is not that strong. So at the moment, the process depends very much um, on, the, on the influence, on the respect that the current um, gang leadership enjoys. But the the idea of leadership in street gangs um, um, is very particular. Leadership generally does not reside in in one person or even a few person. It's, it is not very um, um, hierarchical either. Rather, uh, leadership is shared, and leaders can also be um, replaced if the the gangs deem that um, their leaders are not up to the task that is expected of them. So it is all um, really quite quite uncertain, quite quite fluid, and this makes it difficult to enforce a gang truth because um, it is difficult um, to command um, the obedience um, that, that would be required from all the gang members. So far, um, the the official version we have been told um, is that the gang members um, or the, the leadership certainly is able. Um, to give orders to all gang members to cease violence. Um, but we have seen um, that even though the homicide rate um, has dropped significantly, um, killings do continue, and it seems that um, some of the, the killings at least are also being committed by gang members. So I think it is, um, it is doubtful how sustainable the, the truth will be, but I think there's... Um, a, a reasonable um, concern that the um, that the truth might fail, um, perhaps in the in the political electoral context um, that is approaching, and then um, the the real concern is that the the violence, which was already very high um, before the truth, might spiral even further if the if the truth fails. What you're telling us is that then El Salvador is the exception to the rule, a real outlier when we deal with gang truces. And, and and yes, there have been these stories of continued crime, extortion, other problems with violence around gang recruitment, even during this truce period in El Salvador. But there does seem to be a difference between how the Catholic Church is interacting in El Salvador and in Honduras. Is the church then a, a, a stronger guarantor of, of a truce? Is is that a possibility? Churches, whether they're Catholic churches or evangelical churches, can play a supportive role in keeping young people out of gangs or in, in pulling active gang members out of these groups. Um, we have seen in, in the case of El Salvador um, that the, um, the, the Catholic church um, seems to have been brought in um, by uh, David Munguia Puyes, um, who used to be the, the Minister of uh, Justice, Justice and Public Security until very recently. And it seems that this was um, a very um, strategic move designed um, to provide a certain legitimacy to the whole process and also um, to distance the government a little bit um, from the process. 
distance the government um, because um, gang truces are a very delicate process and um, at the moment um, when the, the government is, um, according to the, to the official version, not directly involved, but merely facilitates um, the process, um, this position allows the, the government um, to claim credit um, for successes of the gang truce, for example, the, the drop in the homicide rate, but it also allows the government um, um, to distance itself from any blame that might arise, um, not to accept responsibility if things go wrong. In the case of uh, Honduras, um, Bishop Emiliani has been um, an important actor uh, in anything concerning uh, gang rehabilitation. He has been um, for many years uh, uh, very outspoken against um, zero tolerance or Manudura policies and has um, actively asked for um, for different gang policies. So I think the, the cases are different in the sense that um, uh, in Honduras, uh, Bishop Emiliani is is committed to different approaches to gang violence, whereas in El Salvador it seems that the the church has been instrumentalized, uh, has been used um, to to legitimize the process. What we haven't discussed is how those iron fist policies, the Monodura policies, really pushed a lot of people into prisons in El Salvador and Honduras and. Those prisons, those overcrowded prisons, have created the conditions for perhaps the need for these truces. Can you tell us a little bit about that particular cycle, about how that affects the rate of extortion and, and crime in these countries? Yes, you're right. The Manudura policies were fundamental in the evolution of the gangs in, in Central America. When uh, zero tolerance or Manudura policies were launched, Honduras started in 2002. El Salvador followed in 2003. Um, both countries had these um, repressive policies designed to arrest suspected gang members. Both countries had also anti-gang legislation, uh, which in the case of El Salvador was declared unconstitutional for the human rights violations that these policies um, and the, the law um, enshrined. The effect um, of the Manudura policies was not only that the homicide rate increased instead of decreased, um, but that um, the Manudura policies had um, very negative effects on the gangs themselves. Um, especially when we look at the prisons, um, what happened was that um, many of the, the gang leaders uh, were imprisoned, um, and the, the very conditions uh, in the prisons, um, which range from um, very poor infrastructure to corruption to a lack of rehabilitation programs, enabled gang members um, to develop stronger ties, to actually also develop connections to um, members of other cliques. So they were able to, to network more. Um, the very um, conditions, um, as I said, in the prisons also allowed them to have um, cell phones smuggled in and to develop um, strong communication with gang members on the outside. And of course, um, perhaps the, um, the most important development was because so many gang members were imprisoned, there was a, um, a lot of pressure on gang members um, out in the streets to collect more funds, more resources in order to support um, gang members who were imprisoned, um, to support them simply in, in, in various ways, but also to pay for defense lawyers and also to support financially um, uh, the relatives of gang members who were imprisoned. 
So this is, it is really since the, the introduction of the Manu Dura policies that extortion became a very um, important source of illicit income for the street gangs. Well, thank you, Sonia Wolf of the nonprofit organization Encide in Mexico City, joining us via Skype today on Latin Pulse. Thank you for joining us again. Thanks very much. A man is found guilty of trafficking Brazilian women to the UK to make them work as prostitutes. The head of an international trafficking network is jailed in Romania, and three people are sent to prison in America for operating a Mexican baby smuggling ring. Human traffickers trick and deceive their victims, but by joining forces we can bring these criminals to justice. Support the United Nations Global Initiative to Fight Human Trafficking, ungift.org. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. Our next guest is John Wolseth of Iowa State University, the author of Jesus and the Gang, Youth Violence and Christianity in Urban Honduras. We caught up with Wolseth at the Latin American Studies Association, the LASA Annual Congress in Washington, D.C. last weekend. Here are excerpts from our on-location interview. Violence, murder, gangs, these are the terms that we hear about when we talk about Honduras. You've taken it to a different dimension, though, in your book. I've really tried to capture uh, the effects of violence, in particular gun violence, on at the very local level. Um, it's an ethnographic study of a particular neighborhood outside of the city of El Progreso on the north coast of Honduras. And I'm trying to give a face to um, what is oftentimes seen as the anonymous numbers of, of, of murder, um, trying to, to really get at how the uncertainties of everyday life that are, you know, the sort of double whammy of, of poverty and violence come together uh, and affect how people are able to live and manage their, their surroundings. Um, I pay particular attention to the role that Christian churches, uh, evangelical as well as the Catholic Church, play in helping mediate in some respect that violence, but also perpetuate the way that, um, that violence impacts their communities. What findings did you have? Sure. What conclusions? So, um, one of the things I do is I, I put the Catholic Church at the, the local parish level, along with the with storefront Pentecostal and Evangelical churches, and local cliques of, um, in this case, the Calle de Ocho gang, although in other neighborhoods it would have been the Mata Salvatrucha, uh, they're on equal footing as the major players and institutions in, in the social life of of these neighborhoods in urban Honduras. In fact, they're pretty much the only institutions that are have uh, an impact and a presence in these communities. And so... So on the North Coast, the state, the Honduran state has faded away. It's there, but it's away from, it's away from the poorer neighborhoods. It's concentrated in the urban center. Um, when it does reach to the, the, the poorer periphery or the neighborhoods, it's in the form of policing. And you know, I kind of have a problem with the fact that that uh, a population's major interfacing with with the state is through police actors, or worse yet, uh, you know, non-state actors in the form of, of vigilante squads um, or off-duty cops, which sometimes happens as well. Each of these institutions are fulfilling a a, a niche within the fabric of society that uh, otherwise, you know, there aren't. There would be very few other social institutions for people to participate in, outside of family, but 
family itself is also being weakened um, because of transnational migration, because of um, murder rates, because of illness. We've talked in this program before about the rise of evangelical Protestantism, of Pentecostalism in Central America and Latin America, and the decline of what, what was popular in, in the 70s, the, mm -hmm. the type of um, liberation theology that, that some in the Catholic Church were, were preaching. Why do you think that that dynamic happened? And, and are you seeing a, a return of this liberation theology in, in, in your work in Honduras? I think one way to characterize it would be solidarity without uh, liberation theology, without an explicit liberation theology framework. So at the parish level, uh, there's a lot of talk about standing with people, standing with the poor, especially if you are poor, right? You know, we're all into this, we're all in this together. Let's not try to separate or parse out who belongs to what in, in the community. Um, so in that sense, that's the inheritance of liberation theology, even as uh, maybe the philosophical or theological underpinnings have been uh, smoothed over. Um, but and I think maybe to El Progreso might be a special case. Um, it is a Jesuit town. It has been for many, you know, almost a hundred years. Um, and because of that, it has a different sort of flavor from other parishes in Honduras that are uh, run by parish priests uh, who are Dominicans, uh, would be their order. Um, and so that has also changed, I think, some of the characteristics. There's also a, a, a workers' movement, in particular a banana workers' movement in the North Coast that uh, was supported by the Catholic Church uh, to some degree, and that has had an influence, I think, on the way that um, the Catholic Church has mobilized uh, or has worked at the parish level. Um, so this is sort of uh, almost occult history that, that has happened um, throughout, say, uh, La Lima and, and El Progreso and the places around those that, um, that the Jesuits have had influence in. Um, that being said, I think there's also some institutional uh, limitations. You know, one of the inheritances of Vatican II was uh, a, a desire to flatten to some degree the, the ecclesiastical structure. And now that's become a necessity. There's just not enough priests to go around to serve all these communities. Um, so lay participation has to increase. Well, when you increase lay participation, what's that going to look like? What is that going to do to, to the way that people uh, understand their popular theology? What haven't we touched on that you think is important for us to deal with concerning your research or your book? Um, so one of the things I, I really hope to get across is that um, there's been a, a there's a lot of demonization that happens of, of gang members, and um, the Catholic Church, and to and in their own way, the evangelical churches um, still see gang members as being um, part of their their community, right? They, one of the reasons why there's such a focus on, on this population, partly it's because of what they, what they do and what they symbolize, but also because they haven't lost hope yet. Um, they see that, that in order to end, 
end the worsening situation at their local level. Right? There's, there's state level policies that aren't going to be working. Um, you know, more policing isn't going to do it. Uh, uh, in fact, more policing actually detrimentally affects the, the these poorer communities. Um, they, they just don't have a good relationship with with uh, you know the state. It's corrupt. Um, so they're going to have to do it on their own terms. And so. How are they going to do it? They're going to have to incorporate, in some way, uh, the who they see as being the major agents of community violence. Thank you, John Wilseth of Iowa State University, the author of Jesus and the Gang, Youth Violence and Christianity in Urban Honduras, our guest today on Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. We'll have more excerpts from our conversations at the Lhasa Congress in D.C. in the coming weeks. Latin Pulse is available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and MusicaQ. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, .org, and then forward slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org, forward slash Latin Pulse. If you'd like to respond to this week's program, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. Thanks for joining us this week as Latin Pulse comes to you remotely from Baton Rouge. For our entire team, associate producer Kurt Devine, writer Zach Cohen, and announcer Victor Kilo, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escúchenos otra vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is sponsored by the Center for Latin American and Latino Studies at American University. The program is produced at the university's School of Communication with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV with additional music from Canary Productions and Bath Time Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2013, Las Rocas Productions.